It's got to be played at volume, right? Voted uh, uh, the 50th best Kiwi song of all time. Uh, Bliss really quickly became uh, an anthem for the pub culture uh, of the 80s. Now, if you're interested, number one Kiwi song of all time is Nature. Just thought you might want to know that. Uh, with Anchor, like, just pipping Bliss at 49, and, and uh, Bliss uh, pipping the Neverworld dancing toys with four today. So Bliss is right up there with uh, anthems. And featuring Dave Dobbin on guitar and uh, Peter Ehrlich, Ehrlich on vocals, the dudes, that's the band, uh, never became uh, quite as famous as their constituent members. You know, the sum of the parts and all that didn't quite work out uh, for the dudes. And uh, people went on to other careers that uh, were much more illustrious than the dudes uh, ever were. But this song tapped into something. It really did. They say Kiwis don't sing, right? But they sing stuff like that. Uh, the, song, uh, the song was actually written while the band uh, were in Sydney and they were gigging around. And so there's a lot of references to, to Sydney landmarks uh, uh, in the song. And I don't know whether I believe it or not, uh, whether I believe it, but this is what the band says, that, that the song was actually a satirical take on drunken Australians uh, in the pubs that they, they played in. So there's some irony in that this satirical song has really become uh, a drinking song, helped in part by having the easiest chorus of all time, right? Easiest chorus of all time, perfectly written for the slightly inebriated crowd. You can actually even get the words right by accident. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sing it with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty difficult. Um, but this, the line, which is the key line of the song, drink yourself more bliss, captures something actually quite important. Because it, it captures the, the human quest for something uh, beyond ourselves, something beyond our own capacity to engineer or construct in our lives. It, in, its, in its own way, it's an ode to the hashtag blessed life, seeking the life that is, that is strangely just out of reach. And so Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and, and his opening stanza, which is the Beatitudes, paints the hashtag blessed life in a different way, uh, a different kind of hashtag bliss life. Let's pray. God, as we continue to uh, journey uh, with your words, uh, as you as you uh, shared them that uh, that day and over over many uh, teaching opportunities, uh, we we continue to ask that you would shape us uh, through them. That Holy Spirit, you would put your finger on our lives, that we would uh, have a sense of what it is that you want to show us what what it is that you want us to see. We pray that we might see it together, but that you might also help us to see things uh, individually. So we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we looked at how the hashtag uh, blessed life is, is, is not the, the kind of hashtag we, we thought it was. It's typically used as, as shorthand for some kind of divine favor, favor that comes from an outside agency, maybe uh, divine, rather than an inward transformation. And there's this tension between how the hashtag attempts to describe life that is 
experiencing some kind of external blessing uh, and the blessed inner life that has been described in the Beatitudes. So we're going to take a few moments just to look again at what exactly are the Beatitudes. See, sometimes you see them described as the blessed are statements, uh, as in our reading today. Sometimes the, the happy are or the fortunate are. But these uh, Beatitudes are not truisms for human life. They're, they're, they're not really uh, conventional uh, wisdom because they don't actually work. The Beatitudes don't actually work in human life. They don't describe human reality uh, in a life that is lived apart from Jesus. They only make sense uh, for those that have decided to become his disciples. And so Jesus is describing how repentant people uh, live will live in his kingdom. How a person who's, who's ready for God's rule in their life, the kingdom of heaven, which we spoke about last week, how, that, how a person who's ready uh, for God's rule in the world will live. In other words, this is about the inner and the outer life, the character and the actions of those who are already disciples uh, of Jesus. But, but they are both unconventional and wise all at the same time. Uh, they are, if you like, the core values of the kingdom, uh, cast as a, really as a, as a deliberate paradox, a, a reversal of values. And we'll look at this a bit more next week, but it's very much a call to stand out, a, a call to be distinctive. And it's God who uh, is the hidden actor, the source of the blessing uh, in each case, uh, as if it is a divine hashtag blessing after all. God is in, uh, the, is backstage making it all happen. And the word uh, that's uh, used for blessed is a very interesting word. Uh, the underlying word, which is, is translated as blessed, um, is, this, is this Greek word, makarios. And, and maybe looking at um, how it was used to describe a place might give us a kind of a better idea uh, of the context. So the Greeks called this place originally Makarios. It's Cyprus. Cyprus was uh, known as Makarios uh, because it was uh, so beautiful, <laughs> so rich, uh, so fertile an island that one would never have to, to go beyond its coastline to find uh, perf the perfectly contented life. Had such a great climate, being there in the Mediterranean, flowers and fruits and trees and grapes and minerals and natural resources, that it contained itself all the materials for perfect contentment, for true bliss. And that's why the Greeks called Cyprus Makarios. William Barclay, a a Scottish theologian of the, in the 1900s whose goal was to, to make theology uh, really accessible and available to everyone, puts it like this. Next slide, please. Makarios then describes that joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and, and the chances of life. That's right, that might be a typo. Um, now, the English word happiness, which is sometimes used 
uh, instead of um, blessed, doesn't work in the same way. The English word happiness has as its root word this word hap, which means, which means chance, which means fortune. So human happiness is something which is dependent on what happens uh, in life, something which life may give and something which life may take away. Uh, that's, that's the external, uh, the external uh, force of happiness. So these different words kind of all kind of circle around uh, what Makarios is trying to get at. So sometimes it's blessed, you know, implies a certain kind of favor. Um, th- and that's a bit counterintuitive, right? That you would have favor in these situations, which are actually sometimes quite harsh and difficult. Sometimes it's the word fortunate, uh, which implies maybe lucky, and, and that it's chance, maybe random, maybe God's not sovereign after all. Or the word happiness, which seems to rely so much on its ex- on the externals of life rather than the internals. So how do we kind of get hold of this word? I actually quite like the Welsh idiom. So the, the Welsh have this phrase, which you know, my heritage. Um, uh, and they have this phrase uh, to describe this kind of state of well-being. And the phrase is, white is their world. Everything in their world is white and pure. Sounds a bit boring to me, and of course that's really indicative of the weather over there. Uh, but the world seems a better place. That, that might actually uh, capture some elements of it. Or you could put it in a kind of a Kiwi uh, parlance. It's all good. Except you might need to say it with a bit more enthusiasm than most Kiwis normally say. It's all good. Maybe that catches, captures some of the idea. Or in the words of the dudes, drink deeply of the bliss of living in the presence of God. Makarios is often translated, oh, the bliss of the heavenly life. The bliss of the heavenly life. And this kind of bliss is, is untouchable. It's unassailable. And Barclay has uh, this to say about it. Next slide. The Beatitudes speak of that joy which seeks us through our pain. That joy which sorrow and loss and pain and grief are powerless to touch. That joy joy which shines through tears and which nothing in life or death can take away. This is the true bliss uh, of the Beatitudes. So kingdom blessings for those who will inherit the kingdom. Uh, This bliss that comes by God's intervention and it's part of the kingdom breaking in to our present, uh, even as it is also something that will be fulfilled completely when Jesus returns. This is the true bliss of the kingdom. This is the blessed life, the heavenly bliss that we who, are, who, who, uh, who follow Jesus uh, can experience. So let's have a little look through uh, the, the individual verses. We're going to be into verse 6 seven and eight this week, doing the, the next three of the nine Beatitudes. Uh, so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So this first issue, drink yourself more, deals with the issue of thirst management. Thirst management. I I don't know if you've ever been really uh, hungry or, or really thirsty. It can actually do strange things to you. 
people who are really hungry will eat all kinds of things, maybe even things they wouldn't touch in normal circumstances or things that will make you sick. If you've ever had the munchies in the early hours of the morning, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and at the same time, people who are really thirsty will drink things that don't actually help with their thirst. And the classic picture of unsuccessful thirst management is the person who drinks seawater to deal with their thirst. There is something about being that thirsty that you're driven uh, to it. And as much as you know that it will not deal with your thirst, you're still drawn to it. You see, drinking seawater in the end will kill you. In the end, you will die of dehydration no matter how much you drink. And there are things in our lives that work the same. No matter how much we eat or, or drink them, we will ultimately die. They are things that lead to inner death rather than inner life. So what, what will fill us then? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Famished, starving, parched, bone dry. What is the righteousness that we are to hunger and to thirst for? And it's not just a simple matter of saying, well, it's either personal piety or, or social justice. It's not just a simple matter of saying it's only the inner life uh, an inner righteousness, or it's only about aligning uh, ourselves with the right causes. Righteousness in Matthew's gospel uh, is, is all about right action and right behavior, doing the right thing because our heart is right. It's about the two things uh, working together. And those who long for what is truly right mirror mirror God's own aspirations for the world. They, they have a, a commitment to a, a personal fulfillment uh, of God's vision for the world, for themselves, uh, for others, for those uh, that they are involved with in life. And it's not so much a, a matter of, of chasing God's righteousness for ourselves. Ma Matthew's not using the term righteousness like we often find it in Paul's writings, uh, which is really about our inner uh, righteousness before God. Uh, Matthew's t talking about it in this pursuit of, of right things, living it out. Uh, and so it, it lies at the crossroads, really, of, a, of an inner life that is seeking uh, God's will and shape for our lives. But at the same time, an outer life that is learning to align our action with our intention, living, uh, living uh, our values, walking our talk. And I think for most of us, we, we're only too uh, aware of, uh, of our failings in this area. In fact, being aware of your failings, that's what it means to be poor in spirit. If you go back to last week, it's a precondition for seeing the kingdom, to recognize the performance gap. But as we learn to, to recognize and to lean in and to join God in, in his activity around us, we will discover the fullness of living that way. I think the truth for many of us is that we fear living selflessly because we're concerned that it might mean living empty, that we might just have to give away too much 
of ourselves that we go without. But the truth is we'll be filled. That's the truth of a life that pursues uh, God's vision. We'll be filled in ways that matter. Uh, the word that's used for filled is the same word that, that's used uh, when you want to fatten an, atom, an animal. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? So this is it, it's stuffed, like overflowing uh, with growth. So oh, the bliss of living for what God desires for humanity. Oh, the bliss of being filled by that kind of life. That's our first uh, one tonight. Second one, uh, verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Let's talk about uh, the mercy rules. Um, I suppose that as we um, read this beatitude, uh, there's, there's a question <laughs> that you could ask. Uh, showing mercy by who? Who exactly will be showing us mercy? For, for the Jew, the idea uh, that God is merciful to the merciful is an acceptable idea. It's an acceptable exchange that God is merciful uh, for the merciful, a sort of a golden rule, you know, do unto others type thing. For 21st century New Zealanders, though, I wonder whether we read it in the same way, whether we read that mercy will be shown on account of our mercy, especially people that we're merciful to. I, th I, think, I don't think it plays. Part of, our, part of our culture, really a default, is this paradigm of fairness that is offended when the mercy that we show to others is not returned. And this is something that, that Matthew's not unfamiliar with because many Greek philosophers thought that mercy was actually a sign of weakness. It wasn't something to be admired as an attribute. But this, I think, is the nature of the Beatitudes. It's not wisdom for humanity in the general sense. Our mercy does not necessarily lead to others showing mercy. Ever notice that? It doesn't always play. It's wisdom for Christ followers, a better way to live. And sometimes it it will influence the lives around us in the direction of mercy. And sometimes our mercy will be met with revenge. Uh, sometimes it'll be met with being taken advantage of. Sometimes it'll be met with shame. Sometimes it'll be met with rejection. But to show mercy is to, is to withhold the just consequences of another's actions towards us. Or, or even the consequences of their actions uh, towards themselves. And so you and I act with mercy when we choose not to let revenge guide us, for example. We had a great uh, discussion at our cell group this week about acceptable wrongdoing in the public, in the public sphere. And you get it wrong in the public sphere and, and people just pile on. It's like a collect revenge for you daring to cross the line of what's accepted uh, wisdom. It's a significant part of, of our society uh, right now. I act with uh, mercy when I choose not to consign someone else to the consequences of their family because they brought it on themselves. <laughs> you, you, you deserve that, man. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not helping. <laughs> 
And I act with mercy when I choose to think the best of somebody, you know, rather than the worst. See, mercy is, the, is this generous attitude to see things from another's point of view. It's not quick to take offense or, or to gloat over another's shortcomings. Mercy sets aside our culture's idea that it's permissible to exact revenge if people have it coming. Uh, I can't believe my social media feed some days. Uh, and sometimes it's really active and aggressive. Other times it's kind of passive and subtle. Um, and we commit our kind of our quiet acts <laughs> of revenge. But the essence of mercy, right? Let us get this clear. The essence of mercy is that people do have it coming. Otherwise, you're not showing them mercy, right? Mercy only operates when somebody has it coming. And you and I are called to express mercy now, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the circumstances. But the mercy we receive is not mercy in the moment, is not mercy for mercy given but to others. The mercy we will receive is, is God's ultimate mercy, mercy that's revealed uh, on the last day, on the day of judgment. Now, I, I think it's really tricky if we do this beatitude, uh, because it, if we do it, it might actually change our way of seeing. Uh, a couple of different ways, I think, that it changes the way we see. First, when we offer mercy to another, something happens that kind of gives us uh, rear view vision. Uh, we begin to see the mercy that is already piled up uh, behind us. <laughs> the acts of care and kindness and tolerance and forgiveness that have been given to us by others. Or we might offer mercy to someone in need because, after all, some of us are good Christians. And see that looking right back at us is our own need uh, for mercy. See, sometimes a call uh, to us for mercy can hold up a mirror to our own souls that makes us, that makes us want to look away. Because we see there our, our unwillingness maybe or our, our inability sometimes to give and to receive mercy. Brene Brown says that uh, when we're unable to accept mercy from others, th those that, that we ourselves have been merciful towards, we stand in judgment on them. Because we have decided that in some way to receive mercy is to be weak. So mercy operates as a bit of a mirror for us. It's complicated and challenging but offering mercy, I believe, will, will really uh, change us and confront us at our very core. So sometimes when someone has a crack at me, uh, I will try to look for the hurt that caused them to lash out. That's my working theory. Uh, when someone says something that could be taken two, two ways, I will try to take the least offensive interpretation, at least maybe on the second or third time around my brain. When someone wrongs me, I will do my best to look for the opportunity for relationship and healing that forgiveness brings. See, this is the everyday hashtag bliss of learning to show mercy. 
that we might receive mercy. This is as everyday as combing your hair and brushing your teeth. Because it happens every day. Oh, the bliss of living mercifully. Our final beatitude for the night, uh, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for, for they will see God. Now, I wonder how um, you see this one uh, at first glance. You know, I, I don't know how you feel about describing yourself with the adjective, adjective pure. <laughs> pure? You're right. <laughs> Not really. I once had a coffee with a guy some years ago now. Um, he confided in me that um, the fear that he had of his ability uh, to influence people, to inspire loyalty in others. And his mother had told him that he was an excellent uh, manipulator. Uh, helpful. And that's the uh, gratuitous Mother's Day reference in the message tonight. Um, and I suggested to him that the best protection uh, he had against becoming a manipulator was his question. Am I being manipulative? That was his question. This, this question showed his purity of heart. Because becoming pure in heart is about becoming one thing. Most of us uh, are dealing with the duality that is at the heart of humanity. I don't want to live manipulatively, but I know I have the capacity for it. The question, am I living manipulatively? is what allows us to reflect on our life in pursuit of becoming one thing rather than the two things that we so often are. The, the pure in heart are learning to become one thing. And I suggest to you that's a, that's a lifelong journey. Now for Jesus, this issue of inner purity was, was critical because it was contrasted so markedly to the idea of ritual purity, which was so much a part of Jewish uh, religious practices. The difference between inner purity and ritual purity, the right sacrifices, the right Sabbath keeping, not being unclean in any way. And Jesus does not say in this beatitude, blessed are the rule keepers. He doesn't say that. He calls instead for purity of heart. And here's the thing about ritual purity. If you only practice ritual, ritual purity in your pursuit of the face of God, then all you will see is yourself. The mirror that ritual purity holds up to us is, is simply us. We become God because our standing before him depends on our purity. I think we do ritual purity as well as any generation. A performance management, uh, when I you know, make sure that people are observing me in a certain way. Uh, sometimes Christians practice karma a lot more than they should. When we balance our good deeds against our bad, we have this unconscious account, ke account keeping internally. Or, or when we depend on certain spiritual practices for, for our standing with God. When, when certain actions... Uh, even certain spiritual practices are calculated to impress others. When we withhold mercy and comment on others' shortcomings that we might look better. All of these are ways that we conduct ourselves 
with ritual purity. Which is why this beatitude is not about us seeing ourselves, which is what ritual purity reveals to us, but is about seeing God. And I, I do think the seeing is very much a work in progress. I love how uh, 1 Corinthians 13 captures this, this kind of process of work in progress. Verse 12, for, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And so this pursuit of purity in heart is this pursuit of becoming one thing before God. This pursuit of being soft to what God might point out in, in our lives, being soft to what God might, where God might allow transformation, where God might show even mercy to us. It's our, often it's, our, it's not, our, spirit, it's not our, our purity practices, but some of our spiritual practices that help us keep soft in heart before God, whether it's solitude or reflection, disciplines of, of confession, coming and being together in, in corporate worship or in small group life where we're kind of a bit exposed. These are the heart-softening practices, I think, that help us to see less of ourselves in a good way and, and more of God. I love uh, uh, how Psalm 24 kind of wraps uh, all of this together. Here's what it says. But we're just going to finish with this as a kind of a, um, a reflection. So get comfortable and uh, let me read it to you. The earth is the Lord and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the, the hill of the Lord? And, and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. These three Beatitudes help us to, to rethink the way that we might think about how we get our bliss. Oh, the bliss of hungering and thirsting for right relationship with God and right actions in his world that will be filled with his presence. Oh, the bliss of, of being a person who has learned to show mercy because we will likely also have learned to receive it. Oh, the bliss of becoming one in ourselves because we will be seeing God. There's actually a, a line I really love in the dude's song in Bliss. And I wonder what Dave Dobbin, uh, who later in life became a Christian, uh, thinks of the irony of this line. The line, which is a part of the song, says this. Get it at the cross. Now, the context of the line is, line is not spiritual comfort. It's falafel. Seriously. <laughs> and it's not that cross. It's King's cross. 
But if you want true bliss, you get it at the cross.